Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is another wonderful bank holiday, so we're going up on the Monday. We're recording this a slight bit before that, so if something horrific happened uh, just before the show went live and we don't mention it, it's because you know, things happen in a different order and sometimes you might think they do. Michael, how have you been? I've been very well, Gary. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, it's been one of those weeks, Michael. One of those weeks that, uh, you know... Just reminds you of the nature of Irish politics and you, know, you spend some time reading through parliamentary debates and it just really cements the feeling that pretty much all of these people are useless. Just <laughs> useless. And not because of the way they vote, Michael, but because the way they vote often indicates their total lack of either belief or substance. Well, yeah, not sure what can you do. I mean, detach yourself from it. This is obviously in relation to the hate speech bill, which passed its final stage in the doll during the week. It's going to now go to the Shannon and they're going to kick it around a bit. But I mean, it looks like a pretty open road to going in as it is without really any amendments. And the uh, debate upon it was um, just deeply depressing. People Poor Profit came out with uh, with a number of amendments, which actually were reasonable and Made sense, and all of them got voted down. And then the vote, Michael, to finish it up in the Dáil, uh, finish the final stage and, and pass the bill on to the Shannon, was lost, oh, I think it was, was it 110 to 14? I think there were 14 TDs vote against it. No, I would just observe in passing, the first thing you'd have to say is that the amendments offered by people before profit were actually very sensible, good, reasonable amendments. They had uh, opposed the an amendment or a proposal that the that there would be a special exception for religious belief, but they did suffer, I think, pretty decent, sensible reasons, as they explained them. And so that in itself is newsworthy. Let's give, you know, props where props are due. Well they 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 they, they put forth sensible things. And then actually when you looked at the fourteen TDs who was against it, 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 if you had no information about it and you were shown a list, these 14 TDs voted in together on this issue, you would have been a bit surprised. It was uh, a group of TDs together that you would not normally have expected to find in the same place. But there you go. It is a bit depressing. I mean, there used to be an, a wing of, of, of Fine Gael which would have seen itself sort of being on the social left of Fine Gael. The likes that would have been people like Alan Shatter, you know. And you would have hoped that there would have been some remnant or trace of that left. In Fianna Fáil in the old days, there was always a traditional suspicion of the extension of the power of the state, not maybe rooted in any kind of deep Hayekian or Miesian philosophical position. It wasn't like they were going around reading the libertarian texts of like Nozick or Rothbard, but because of the history of the state and the history of the genesis of Fianna Fáil, they were always a little bit worried about giving the police and the state that too much power because, you you know, one day they might wake in the middle of the night near the helicopters in the sky and they knock on the door and then they'd be taken away to the Cora. But again, we saw no signs of any kind of disruptive questioning, even questioning, not even, well, we understand what you're doing, but is this the best way to do it? Again, the speed at which it's being done, the lack of, of investigation, and, you know, surely... If any one group of people should be concerned about this kind of legislation more than others, and I think everybody should be concerned, it should be journalists. It should be journalists should be out there mounting the barricades, you know, and defending the old Voltairean position of I disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death the right to do it. But no, hardly a peep out of the great uh, masses of the main. Oh, we 
now called the mainstream media. So yes, uh, a little bit depressing. Of course, <laughs> we won't get distracted by the whole issue of journalism and Michal Martin's attacks on uh, the ditch, etc. But uh, you can kind of see the point of, shall we say, non uh, non traditional forms of journalism right now more clearly than we've ever done before. In relation to the ditch, I did quite like to see that the NUJ came out and defended them. Because, Michael, certain things have been said about gripped under parliamentary privilege, and uh, we didn't get the NUJ out to defend us. That's a little bit of whataboutism, but I just thought it was good to, you know, let people know that there had been other opportunities for the NUJ to come out against this sort of thing. Sorry, I just saw a tweet, a, a tweet there, in, which was in response to the NUJ, complaining that when the problem really was the NUJ didn't have sufficient barriers to entry into the union. So anybody could go around calling themselves a journalist. And that was the problem. So you need the likes of, you mentioned one individual who was no more a journalist than the editor of the Daily Sport. I, I'm, I'm not in a position to comment on the qualifications of the editor of the Daily Sport since it's a newspaper I, I'm not au fait with. I've, I don't think I've ever read it. I, Sure, it's seen it. But I imagine that it must be some terribly low kind of thing. Anyway, I just love the idea that there are people out there who think that all you have to do is stop people joining the NUJ and that'll solve the problem of, shall we say, alternative media. I, I'm not even sure I mean, if the man is a member of the NUJ. It also is actually a, it, it, it's a misunderstanding of journalism that seems quite common, particularly amongst members of the NUJ. The idea that one becomes a journalist when one joins the NUJ and presumably if you don't join the NUJ, you're not a journalist. And that's not the case of it. You can be a journalist and not join the NUJ. It's just a trade union. It was a trade union that, much like equity, had really strange and arcane rules set up to basically create what was a closed shop. You couldn't become a journalist in Ireland working for a newspaper unless you were in the NUJ, and you couldn't become a, you couldn't become a member of the NUJ unless you had a certain portion of your income which was derived from journalism. So it was a very successful way of keeping a fairly tight grip on who could and couldn't could get a job writing for a newspaper in Ireland for a very long time. Those days are gone. The internet has exploded to that. So it, it is a, it's a harking back to a, another lovelier day, I suppose. But there you go. And we should understand that as conservatives. You know, we don't like to look back to the better days in the past. But in this particular instance, I think that that particular horse has long since bolted. One area that people for profit seemed particularly interested in in their amendments is Section 10 which is the offence of preparing or possessing material likely to incite violence or hatred against persons on account of their protected characteristics. They, I think, particularly are interested in Section 10.3, which says this. And basically, this is, this is as it sounds like, this is, it makes it an offence to possess material which could be deemed offensive or to incite hatred. Now, I believe there is already a similar law on the books from uh, the 1989 Act. But there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. This offence has, on summary conviction, a Class C fine or imprisonment for a term not exceeding six months, or on conviction on indictment, a Class A fine or imprisonment for a term not exceeding two years. So potentially quite heavy jail sentence uh, for this, or prison sentence for this. But here's what 10.3 says. In any proceedings for an offence under this section where it is proved that the accused person was in possession of material and it is reasonable to assume that the material was not intended for the personal use of the person, the person shall be presumed until the contrary is proved to have been in possession of the material 
in contravention of subsection 1, which is to say, if you are found with material that they can say could cause offence or incite violence or hatred, and police or the prosecution say that it is reasonable to assume you intended to give that to someone at any point, then you will have to prove that it was purely for your personal use, which is a shifting of the burden of proof, which is going to be potentially quite difficult. Yeah, it's one of those little intercalations there that has a lot of weight to it. It's just that person shall be presumed, comma, until the contrary is proved, comma. And that's a... That's an unusual step, shall we say, within the tradition of common law that we inherited from the British of the presumption of innocence. So you're going to have to, and how do you prove that? What 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 level what level of what level of proof are you going to have to do? Is it going to be like fifty fifty that it's just as a, it's likely or probable? Or? So the when when this is brought up in the debates, there seems to be two lines. One, you know, that the courts will set the exact parameters of it, and two that there's going to be, obviously there's an element of discretion there, Michael. And I think the idea of there being discretion is actually much more of a problem for, for this reason. When people think of authoritarian regimes, they tend to assume there are no laws because the rulers want to be able to act freely and laws are a hindrance to that. What actually happens is that there are usually an incredible variety of laws, oftentimes on paper quite good laws, but usually quite far-reaching laws. And what happens is those laws are generally overlooked until you create a problem, at which point they will rightfully use their discretion to figure out which of those laws you've broken and then rightfully take you off the board. The issue with authoritarian states is not that there is no law, it is that the law is used with, shall we say, a certain degree of arbitrariness or or with discretion with intent. So whenever anyone says, oh, well, we can reverse the burden of proof at our discretion, I would like to see a little bit more on, you know, what exactly binds that discretion. I was just going to say, I remember talking to somebody who had been a fairly senior member of the, shall we say, the security apparatus in the United Kingdom worked for the Ministry of Defence saying to me that one of the things he found personally concerning I'm talking starting back in the late 70s he was to be be talking about was that the number of the amount of legislation that was going through Parliament but he said it was happening in Ireland also where where bills were passed where there were chunks of it which was at the discretion of the Minister uh, should them and in the United States it would be like in the case of the presidential executive orders that legislation going through where it's not defined. It's not clear. It's just at, at the discretion of the minister. And you said, Gary, so say about the courts will set the parameters. No, generally speaking, courts don't want to set parameters. Courts regard the job of writing laws as being the job of the parliamentarian. And once the parliamentarians give them the law, then they apply the law. If you say the courts are going to set the parameters, what you're effectively saying is the courts will make law. Now, you can argue the courts do that by precedent and starting to Jesus creates law in the future. And there is a there is an element of truth to that. But this is, if you're saying, well, oh, the courts will decide that, the courts will set the parameters. Well, then you're saying that you're effectively making the courts a legis- uh, legislative body. And that's not what they're supposed to do. And I don't believe it's what they want to do. I, I would note here, actually, Michael, from going through the debate, there are two people I just wanted to refer to in general, or sorry, in specific. Jim O'Callaghan and Aidan O'Reardon. And why I want to bring them up is this. Jim O'Callaghan, who's a smart guy, talks through some of the issues 
in this bill, Michael. Some of the significant issues in this bill. And Aidan Arudon also talks through some of the issues. Now, they both say they support hate speech legislation. But then they say, well, what we'd like to do here, Michael, is that um, basically we'll vote for it. But when it goes to the Shannon, you know, the Minister of State might look at some of these issues. And then they both vote for the passing of the bill. That's not how this works, lads. You don't say we're going to allow this to proceed beyond the chamber we are in ourselves. And, you know, Minister, would you be a good chap and fix these issues? You vote to have the bill amended while it's in your chamber. And I just think it's just an act of reprehensible moral cowardice to pull that sort of bullshit yeah, yeah, it's a it's an abdication of their responsibility as parliamentarians when they have a piece of legislation before them. A, a TD who actually believes that this bill should be passed, I would disagree with them. I would say that there are many issues they have not properly considered, but it is fundamentally understandable because they think it is a positive thing to acknowledge the issues with this and then basically on your voting record show that actually you'll pass it anyway is just, what is the point of you? You know, there's, there, you're talking about the way that totalitarian states use law. And I think that's an interesting and important point, is, to, is, is the way systems use laws. I think we should look at three different things that are, to me, it seems to me, all part of the same subset when it comes to uh, fundamentally attacks on civil liberties and, and shutting down free speech. You have the hate speech laws, you have the hate crime legislation and also the proposed laws regarding what you have people have called safe creating safe spaces around uh, abortion clinics so to limit protest or any kind of presence outside there so i was having a conversation recently with a, a woman in england called isabel vaughan spruce who some listeners may be aware of there was quite a bit of uh, uh, attention paid to her on the internet. There were some video clips. Uh, she, this lady has been arrested twice. She is a pro-life uh, Catholic activist in the, the United Kingdom. And she and a group of other people go to a, an abortion clinic, what was an abortion clinic in Birmingham, and they would stand outside it and they would pray. Anyway, she was arrested under... Um, I think it was at, at that time, although there is now, uh, I'm not sure if it's been brought in yet. If there was a proposal, I think maybe it's been brought in now, a national uh, law regarding creating you know, excluded spaces in, uh, around England. But this was a this was a local thing where they were told not that they could not that they were named individuals that they couldn't occupy go to these places, but rather that there were certain things they couldn't do. Anyway, what they did was they prayed silently. Now. She was arrested and she was cautioned. She was charged. And then the charge was dropped uh, without prejudice. It wasn't on the basis that both she, she could defend herself, but also that if the Crown Prosecution Service decided that they want to continue at some later stage. She was then arrested again, right? And on the second occasion she was arrested, six policemen arrived in a van to arrest this not terribly frightening, intimidating uh, middle-aged lady, and say middle-aged, I hope she doesn't take offence of that. And they questioned her, asked her what she was doing, and she, she, I can't remember what she said, something she wasn't doing anything. They asked her, was she praying? And she said, I might be. And in a statement which genuinely shocked me, I'm mean, not saying this as some kind of a rhetorical position, genuinely shocked me, a British policeman, you know, the country of Magna Carta, the Glorious Revolution, and all that kind of stuff, and John Stuart Mill, said, your praying is an offence. 
something she was doing, an internal process she was creating. Now, the point that she made and several other people have made, and she's received quite a lot of support, not from people necessarily who are either religious or pro-life, but rather simply concerned about civil liberties is that it's perfectly possible what actually may happen here, and I sus- in, in this case, and I suspect maybe the issue uh, that may occur with this kind of legislation in Ireland is that the process itself becomes a punishment. It becomes a deterrent. It becomes a chilling effect. They may not actually ever proceed with it because in, the, in, this, in this particular case of law, there may be concerns that because English law has, uh, I think under Troy Blair, incorporated, for example, the European Court Convention of Human Rights, or because if it went to what used to be the House of Lords and now in England, the, the Supreme Court, the judges might find that this provision is contrary to natural justice as established in English common law or something like that. And they, they, it may, and also they probably just don't want to have a big debate about the fact that women are not going to be allowed to stand in the public pathway and silent, just silently pray, and that the, the, the state is in a position to punish you for something interior, a thought. And this, is, this was something that was brought up in this debate that we are essentially going to create legislation which is going to publish, punish people for thinking. But their concern is that actually the prospect of having to go through what is a difficult, potentially expensive and stressful process will simply deter people from doing things. And isn't, Gary, that part of something that's been happening within the Western world in the last number of years, that it's not necessarily... That there are that we can, I, we you can point to a rule that you have broken, but rather the ambiguity that is created makes people concerned to such an extent that they, rather than say something, they will simply say nothing, because they're not a hundred percent sure if it will in fact get them in trouble. So the process and the ambiguity creates a chilling effect. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, that story is particularly humorous, given that England is not a secular country. Indeed. Unlike ours, it actually has an established church. It is has a state religion, and the, the head of state is actually the head of that church, and that is a Christian church. And this lady is being is being told by a policeman that the act of praying is an offence. That's a bizarre notion. Yeah, there is actually one more section of the bill which I thought was was, um, was worth mentioning. Now, I'm not I'm not an expert in criminal law. And this may actually be fairly standard for search warrants. But the section of it detailing with search warrants, Michael, has a, an interesting um, an interesting proviso that anyone who has a, a search warrant under this legislation and enters any place that's being searched, so let's say your home, Michael, yes. they have the ability to operate any computer at the, this, uh, at the place that's being searched or cause any such computer to be operated by a person accompanying them, and, and here's the interesting one, require any person in that place who appears to have lawful access to the information on any such computer to give any password necessary to operate it and any encryption key or code necessary to unencrypt the information accessible by the computer, or to otherwise enable whoever is searching to examine the information. And to produce the information in a form in which it can be removed and made visible and legible. And the interesting thing there is that if you, uh, one, the definition of a computer, Michael, covers, it means a personal organizer or any other electronic means of information storage and retrieval. So your phone is a computer under this. 
And if you refuse to give a police officer access to um, to your phone, to your computer, to any other electronic medium you have, and it does not say that they can only access certain things, so full access to it, any access they deem they require, well, you can be sentenced to a Class A fine and imprisonment not exceeding 12 months. Now, again, I'm not an expert in criminal law. That might be the normal shape of, of um, search warrants in Ireland. But that seems very broad. Well, it actually, what it sounds like, is the same kind, same kind of parameters that you set down if you're if you're making a raid on somebody that you believe was, say, holding obscene images or images of child pornography or something like that. So, it, I mean, there there may well be precedent, but yes, it is indeed a, a fairly broad, wide ranging. So, I did, I don't know. I mean, did you see the um, the piece of on hate crime that the the Guardi had on public on uh, social media. No, but I presume it's like all of the rest of it, where it's you know report hate crime. Hate crime is anything you perceive to be hate crime. Was that the general gist well, of it? That was very much the gist of it, and, I, and in a sense, I thought it was useful because I think the more people actually see this rather than hear it from what's where they might think, ah, oh, this is just usual nonsense you hear from the scaremongering right. That it 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 might be a useful thing to get people to think about. It, it's it's let's stop hate together, and of course we we that's a reasonable thing to say because we all know that, that this the, the most effective way of stopping people hating each other or hating anybody is to get the police involved. Michael, we all know that the way to bring communities together is to have an external force with the ability to use force upon you and you know the uh, the moral right to do so policing every interaction of those communities in a way where any busybody could bring the force of the state down upon anyone they deem to have infracted on them that's how you'll get those two communities to work together harmoniously and absolutely won't breed some sort of resentment or you know desire to hurt the other people in any way no, no. I mean, it's been successful across the world. It was successful in South Asia. It was successful in India. It's successful in the United States. Great. But they actually give a, defic- a hate crime definition, and it is very useful. Under the tagline, report hate crime now, hate crime definition, any criminal offence which is perceived, very important word, by the victim or, important, any other person, the victim or any other person, to be in whole or in part, to be motivated motivated by hostility or prejudice. Now, prejudice it seems to me is a, one of those words, Gary, that you could make it you could make it bigger or small depending on what you wanted to do, based on actual or perceived age, disability, race, color, nationality, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or gender. Now there's a we don't know, Gary, but without you know, plowing over land, we've plowed. Many times before, the cent- okay. The central verb there, which is driving this whole thing, is motivated. So the motivation of the crime is now regarded as one of the central issues. But it's perceived. The word "perceived" is used twice, and it's actually clarified in whether it is based on actual or perceived prejudice, which is based on actual or perceived. So they're saying it doesn't matter if it was actually motivated by hostility or prejudice, whether motivated by hostility or prejudice based on actual or perceived age. So if you perceive 
if you if, like if you if you if you if you thought someone was old but in fact they were young or if you if you perceived if you perceived that they perceived somebody was of a certain color or race then it's a hate crime <laughs> that's a that's a fantastic piece of legislation is it not that's not going to produce any kind of weirder weirder on welcome outcomes can uh, but most of all, I just I think it's fantastic because, of course, finally, the Angarda Kishikana, keeping people safe, uh, f- funded in part by the EU Internal Security Fund for Police, by the way, just as an extra piece of information for you. When I, I said earlier about, um, we were talking about authoritarian states, Michael, I think it's very, it's very relevant to discuss that in light of this bill, not because I think it's imposition transform Ireland into a totalitarian state. But you can look at how totalitarian states structure themselves in order to examine other bills and see what the risk to civil liberties. Sorry, you, you said authoritarian, not not, mm-hmm. not totalitarian. Actually, you kind of see it more in totalitarian because you can technically have a democratic authoritarian state. Yeah. So totalitarian is, is probably a, a better way to, or is a more accurate way to say. But you can examine the way they do things in order to look at bills we pass in order to determine how much of a threat there is to civil liberties in their operation. Because there tends to be, we, we talk about one of the things, Michael, there, that discretion is used in order to determine who will be charged. There's two other things that I think are actually relevant here. One is that it should be so wide ranging that either anyone could break it or it could be broken so easily that people can't realistically tell if they have broken it, such as, let's say, Michael, putting in a law which says that anyone perceiving you to have done something hateful can complain that you've done something hateful, even if you didn't. So wide ranging. And the third one is vagueness. And that's kind of tied to the wide ranging. You want a little bit of ambiguity, Michael, because it lets, you know, your people slip out and it makes sure you pick up everyone you need to. And it was interesting in on that basis to look at what people before profits first uh, First Amendment was for this bill, the First Amendment they put forward. And they wanted to change the definition of hatred, Michael. Because do you know what the bill's current definition of hatred is? One. So it's about two lines long, but the first part of it is, is the most important part. Hatred means hatred. <laughs> now it goes on to say against a person or a group of persons in the state on account of their protected characteristics. But the definition of hatred in this bill is that hatred is hatred. And people before profit wanted to say hatred means a state of mind characterized as intense and irrational emotions um, of energy detestation uh, rooted in bias, prejudice, or hostility, which is at least something you can argue because it's an actual definition as opposed to hatred means hatred. Leave aside the substance of the thing. If you're drafting a law about something, and the thing you're drafting about in this case is hatred, and the de- you, you, and you, your attempt to define it is simply and obviously circular, what are you at? How is how do this? How do the clerks of the door? How do the people who give advice on the drafting of legislation ever let this get to the floor of the door? Let alone how the hell does it pass the door with fourteen people voting against it? Here's here's the great thing, Michael. So Minister James Brown, who is the Minister of State at the Department of Justice and is handling this, said in response to it that um, the definition of hatred as currently set out in the bill represents the words ordinary meaning and everyday meaning and is established in terms of the statute book as evidenced by the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act of 1989. So I went and I looked at what the definition of hatred is, Michael, 
in the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act of 1999. Would you like to guess what it is in that? Possibly hatred is hatred. I don't know. Hatred means hatred. Oh, God. So we don't need to do it because, you know, it's the ordinary meaning and it's already been defined in legislation where it has been defined as exactly the thing we're using now that people are saying is not sufficient. Just some wonderful fucking work from the state. Essentially, Gary, what we're saying is that it's turtles all the way down. No, I think it's, you know, the American uh, Supreme Court, when they were asked to define pornography and said, you know it when you see it. I think it's basically that. We're going to put in a law which could have incredibly wide ranging uh, impact on civic liberties and could be used by a future government, Michael, that doesn't have particularly, uh, you know, a degree of respect for those rights to get pretty into the weeds. And we're basically just going to go, sure, you'll know it when you see it. Great. Just fabulous work from the government, as usual. And again, Michael, 110 to 14 to progress. This is precisely what I was talking about before, where you a combination of inexactitude, vagueness, and ambiguity would create a situation where the ordinary citizen simply will not be sure if or if he or she is not in fact in danger of breaking the law. And in those circumstances, most people will simply decide the sensible thing is to say nothing rather than put themselves in a position where they might find themselves being taken in by the guards and brought up before the courts. One of the principles, one of the fundamental principles of, of justice is that when you pass a law, that the law should be intelligible, consistent and predictable so that the ordinary citizen, the, the man or the woman on the back of the Clapham omnibus, has a pretty decent capacity to understand whether she or she is not, in fact, breaking the law. Because we know that in law, ignorance is no defence. But that only works when it's possible for the, t- the citizen to have a, a reasonable chance of knowing what the hell the breaking the law would look like. So you, we, if you create, and it, it feels like this is almost a deliberate. Is it incompetence or is it deliberate? A, a deliberate attempt to make a situation where people will just do nothing, say nothing, because, mm, God, I don't know. I mean, that might that might be illegal. That might be hatred. I don't think it's deliberate for this very simple reason, Michael. You and I, I know both, have talked to a number of TDs who voted for the passage of this bill and are privately of the opinion that it's horrendous. But then they went and voted for its continued passage. So this is a, a discussion I've been having recently with people, and it was in they were talking about the idea of a rural party and its value, and they were saying, well, you know, there are good TDs already. There are people who are, you know, sensible and reasonable. And my response, and I think it's borne out by this, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're good people. It doesn't matter if they're ideologically on side. It doesn't matter if they know what is right and what should not be done. If at the end of the day, they will vote the way they are told to, and the way they are told to is negative. Yeah, but this goes back to a conversation we've had before when... Our friends um, who are on their their, their podcast were discussing, uh, uh, John and Sarah were discussing, the, the shall we say, the, the difference in approach between them, say, Crypt and uh, the Ditch, and where how they see the problem. And they say that conservatives tend to see the problem as being one of competence or incompetence. And in the Ditch, they tend to see the problem as being a question of establishment, uh, sort of golden circles and corruption. And I can understand that. Either of those positions, you can say, oh, people must be corrupt. Although I, I'm always reminded of that famous quote, when, uh, was it a British politician said, when they talk about why would you bribe, why would you bribe a British journalist when you see what he will do on bribes? 
so but you know we have a we have a we have some history in that line of, of in a small country of golden circles and corruption on the other side and we have certainly have a, a long and noble tradition of incompetence but really i don't think that's I, either of those are the central problem i think the, the central problem is exactly what you've talked about there is the fact that we have a doll where we have many many tds and indeed ministers framing legislation advocating for legislation voting for legislation which they don't believe in and indeed, in, in a number of situations, when I know for a certain fact from private conversations, they not only believed that the legislation was not going to achieve what it was, in theory, intended to, but they actually believed it would make things materially worse. I'm thinking, say, for example, of a number of economic policy choices that have been made, how choices around, say, around housing or rent or rent controls, this kind of thing, many, many cases where they actually believe, yeah, this is probably going to make things worse, but we're going to do it anyway because that's the thing we're going to do. Not why they do this, Gary, that is something which I can come up with various theories, but really at the end of the day, I, I remain baffled. Yet again, we are that we, we are that couple. You're amused and I am baffled. But that is true. That's a fact of life. I would just make the point because I've sometimes in conversations with these people, they will say things like, well, it's better that I am in the party and can, you know, push for better policies in general. And sometimes that means I have to do these things. And I would make the point there that that doesn't seem to be working, lads, does it? It seems to the uh, push for better things just doesn't seem to be going to plan. But there's a lot of voting for things you see you, you don't like. And I would just make the overall point, Michael, that a person who does something morally or ethically odious because they believe that thing is morally or ethically correct, is a better person than a person who does an odious thing while knowing it is odious, regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's culpable and inculpable ignorance, I suppose. But yes. There was uh, one other thing I wanted to uh, mention, Michael, actually. It's yeah. in relation to an article in The Irish Independent. It's by Ellen Coyne. Um, who, Michael, you know, uh, I must mention as, you know, every time it comes up, was described under parliamentary privilege as um, having, what was the exact word so that I'm covered by the parliamentary privilege? <laughs> yeah. yeah, be careful. Yeah, this was in relation to a, a group down in Limerick where Ellen Coyne reported their remarks. And um, yes, that, that was it. Ronan Mullen said that she invented remarks attributed to a named source. Now, I couldn't possibly comment on that, Michael, because were I to do so, I would actually not be covered by the parliamentary privilege and could be sued for defamation. But I think, you know, it is interesting that that was said in the parliament. And we've all got to recognise that and mention it every time Ellen Coyne name come up in relation to uh, or just her general conduct. But anyway, uh, and I don't just say that because it was my reporting that caused that to happen. So Ellen Coyne wrote an article saying three-day abortion away is Fine Gael's intellectual property. If it's going to remain, the party needs to explain why. It's basically just an assault on Fine Gael and any idea that they may not vote for everything that was in the uh, review of the abortion law. But there are some interesting points in it, Michael. So she says that the three-day wait is one part of the abortion law which has always been divisive and that it was an idea that late came late to the campaign and was basically a political construction that was put in by politicians who were wavering. Basically, Michael, that's not quite my memory 
of what happened during the campaign. I remember it being quite prominently put forward by campaigners uh, calling for the removal of the Eighth Amendment as a major safeguard that would be put in place in order to get people who might be wavering about it. And now it's become a suddenly divisive thing, which was only put in place uh, basically to get pro-life politicians on side. It's very interesting how that's transitioned like that, isn't it? Well, we have gone with remarkable speed. Remember in in the old days in the United States, uh, people who were advocating for, uh, shall we say, abortion rights, you'd say they wanted abortion to be safe, legal and rare. Um, and that pretty well has disappeared. We have con, we have, we have managed to evolve from that position where during the referendum campaign, there was this sense, well, you know, obviously we're doing this in response to very particular specific needs. What we want, we, uh, and we need this, uh, we need abortion to be, to be safe, to be legal, but to be rare. We want, and when people, for example, on the pro-life side said, well, what this will lead, this will lead to a significant increase in the abortions. They were that notion was derided and poo-pooed, and that's nonsense. And why would that happen? Don't be silly. Uh, when the actual figures have come out, and we have seen a dramatic increase in the abortions. Well, there you go. We've now transitioned from safe legal to rare. Well, it's just healthcare. So why would you need this? I mean, it's just just people accessing healthcare. We what's the big deal? Just it's uh, and the notion also we absolutely now we 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 have transitioned as well from the idea that what the, the, the referendum was to repeal something and then to replace it with legislation. It is now being framed as if what it was actually really was a referendum on whether or not we should have unlimited access to abortion, and that sixty six percent of the people voted for unlimited access to abortion, and for God's sake, get on with it. The idea that any of that 66% might have been anywhere on the fence or was really just looking for a very limited form of uh, legislation that would only deal with very specific hard cases, that's just nonsense. That's That's been memory hold. That's gone. A lot of talk about safeguards, Michael, that safeguards would be in place. Don't really hear a lot about safeguards anymore. Almost like there was never an intention for those safeguards to be permanent fixtures, and there were really just things that could be dangled in front of the electorate to paper over any concerns they might have had uh, before being removed as soon as it was uh, amenable to them, knowing that once the issue was out of the Constitution, well, then it was just a matter of politics, my dear boy. But that would be deeply cynical, Michael. Deeply, deeply cynical. To think that they would do that. These respectable people would effectively lie to the public. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's, that's. Uh... And in doing so, make the, uh, the campaign to retain the Eighth Amendment right. That these things would be removed and that this was never going to be permanent. And now, Michael, we have the abortion review, which has come out and given its very, very, very much anticipated, um, results. And I am told that there will be a free vote on it, which means, Michael, we'll probably see them all go through. And it, I will say just on, on passant that uh, it, it's good to see that the the, uh, the ICLU at least maintaining its, its strong civil liberties position both on this issue and also the tremendous noise that they have been making about, say, the the uh, hate speech laws and the crime and the hate crime laws that they have been really out to the forefront, manning the barricades, defending civil liberties and free speech. At least we can, we know that there is somebody out there speaking for us, Gary. Well, Michael, the ICCL has actually been very much to the forefront on these issues. Um, you know, they, they've been, they've been interfacing with the government, as I think they might say. And in fact, the fact that NGOs have, um, recommended certain things 
is referenced several times in the debates. Um, I don't think they've kind of properly highlighted, Michael, to the public the exact position they've been taking when they've been talking to the government, which is that we absolutely need to do these things. And by the way, we should act to make sure that we can maximize convictions under it, which is a bit of a weird position for civil liberties organizations to take. But Michael, who are we to question them? I, know, I, I, I always struggle with their name. The ICC, I, I think I, 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 I tend to mix them up with the SELU and I call them the ICLU or something. I, I, I don't know why I, I, I such an August Civil Liberties Union, why I should have difficulty with their name. Anyway, before we, we go, Gary, I just want to very, very quickly mention, because just you, you can't not mention the recent comments about His Excellency on Luchtaron, uh, about the fact that we have become obsessed, Gary, with growth. And we have to get away from this terrible obsession with growth. And uh, to give it more nuance, because people have criticised people for just focusing on that one thing, that he goes, he says the narrow focus constitutes an empty economics, which has lost touch with everything meaningful, a social science which is no longer connected, or even attempts to be connected with the social issues and objectives which it was developed over the centuries. It is incapable of offering solutions to glaring inadequacies of provision as to public needs, devoid of vision. Just curious, Gary, to wonder, to ask the man, this very brilliant, very loved, loved and beloved man, this great man, how precisely are we going to provide all of these services that he wants without economic growth? What does he, how does he square this dismissal of it? The desire to have economic growth with the fact that economic growth, driven by the introduction, at least in part, of, of market economics in places like China and India, has listed, lifted literally billions of people out of absolute poverty. Or is, or is he against that? Is he against the notion that people should actually have more than a dollar a day to live on, but rather should enjoy the simplicity of their lives? and not be caught up in the rank consumerism of late-stage Western capitalism. And why in the name of God is he talking about this stuff anyway? But, like, are you surprised, Michael? What? No, I'm not surprised, because my opinion of him is exactly the same as my opinion of him was. Well, no, maybe that's true. Maybe it's, it's lower, because he has shown such a dramatic disdain for the office of the presidency and the importance of the role of the president that I hadn't anticipated would be quite as bad as it is and has done real damage to the constitution of the country and to the nature of our democracy. But also, and I know I'm probably a fairly lowly soldier on that particular opinion, but the opinion that people persist in having of him, this is, this is beyond stupid, guy. This is thick. This is an almost malign refusal to engage with reality. And particularly for someone who goes on so much about the need to provide services and to basic provision and all, which is impossible to achieve without economic growth. I mean, if you look at the you look at the change in the nature of poverty in this country in the last forty years, and the massive diminution of poverty. If you look at the increase in life expectancy, in the in the increased. Um, 
the health and quality of life of, of so many people, that has been driven by economic growth. If you look at poverty in old people, for example, which was a real problem in this country, we've essentially solved that problem. The problem, oh, listen, I don't want to get into it because then we'll just, we will end up having another hour on like, the nature of the fact that so many of the problems that we have today in what is, and let's not forget, actually a very successful country. We are a very successful country with problems. I, I mentioned to you before, uh, we were, before we went on air that, we, for example, in Hank's misery index, we come in as number in second last place. I think only Malta has a lower score for misery. We can't. We we, we scored. We are the eighth highest score for uh, democracy in the world. We come something like fifth in the world economic in 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 the Fraser Institute and the Heritage and and then the Cato and somewhere fifth or sixth in economic freedoms. We come. 13th in the world, even though people like to think of us being this horribly corrupt country, actually, we're in, we score 13, we're number 13 in the perceived corruption index. We are in many ways a successful country. We have, I think, among the highest or amongst the highest life expectancy in Europe now. We are in many ways doing well. The problems that we have again and again and again are the result of policy decisions made by state intervention. And I would say the most obvious one of that is the consistent problem we have with housing in this country, and which I believe is in very, very large part, and demonstrably in large part, a result of bad interventions on the, on the behalf of part of the state, and not as a result of the failure of the market. But yet he will come out with these statements, which are a, a level of economic ignorance and stupidity, and yet people, ah, isn't he great? Ah, he's fantastic. Oh, he's a great little man. I know. There's more talk about, I mean, I, I'm a human being. And I, when we had dogs, I loved my dogs. And he, But there was more talk about the fact that his dog had died than there was about, you know, it was, it's nonsense. Just. To, to move us away from this, Michael, before you just. Yes, please do. Yourself, please, like some sort of, please. Uh, of black hole, uh, we were talking about the abortion, uh, about the abortion review, and it's made wide, wide-ranging uh, recommendations. And I, I haven't seen anyone talk about this, but I thought I would ask you: they did, um, they based their qualitative data on interviews. Michael, would you like to guess how many people they uh, interviewed? This is, you know, for a wide-ranging report, which will change a matter which is, regardless of your blue beliefs, legitimately an issue of life or death. I don't know, a few hundred? 43. A few. 43. 43. Okay, and then and then, then even more, do we know how they selected them? Um, yes and no. So they describe how they did it, but their description of how they did it doesn't actually adequately explain what was done. So they say that they use a particular sampling approach designed to address evidentiary and population gaps and ensure both were methodologically consistent and would, in combination with secondary desktop data, provide a robust data set. And then you go, okay, how'd you do that? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm hearing nothing after that. <laughs> Michael, there's this 
not a lot after this. So for instance, it breaks it down by the um, the level of care these people were in and if they were in a hospital group, what hospital group they were in. in. And you're looking at like Ireland East Hospital Group, four people, like four respondents from it. And I would note also, Michael, that um, they did 43 participants, but they only did 41 interviews, which means that, well, I would suspect that some of those interviews, they doubled up and maybe some people they interviewed twice. It's unclear. It doesn't actually say how that was broken down. I, if I were to describe the methodology of this uh, of this whole thing, Michael, I would describe it as a methodology which you were pretty sure no one was ever going to have any follow-up questions about. Well, there's nothing new there. No, but it, it continues to astound me how unseriously we take things like this. So, for instance, they, they're talking about things like, oh, the, the three-day waiting period and if it should be gotten rid of or if it should be kept. And they reference a number of studies. Some of those studies I'm familiar with, and those are not good studies. And then they seem to, based on that and their very small inter- amount of interviews, uh, say that there's no need to have these things. But they don't, for instance, Michael, look at the amount of people who, and this data is, is available, the HSE and the department have it, who went to a doctor, requested an abortion, and then did not proceed following the three-day waiting list or waiting period, which you think might be the sort of thing you might be interested in, Michael, if you're interested in knowing if it had any impact. Because if, you know, 98, 99, 100% of the people who came at the start of the three-day waiting period came back, well, then clearly the waiting period is having minimal effect. But I happen to know that the numbers actually show quite a number of people dropped out during that. So I'm curious why they didn't examine that. Just a thought. Yes, very, very curious indeed. I think we should draw, uh, we should draw a veil over that there because I suspect this is a conversation we shall be returning to more than once again in the future. But uh, until then, I wish our listeners a pleasant and enjoyable weekend, bank holiday weekend, and to all the workers out there, this is your festival, this is your holiday, so go out there and do nothing. And we'll see you next Sunday. All the best.